Today's reading is from the book of Genesis, chapters 18 and 21. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sias of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore, bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children yet I have borne him a son in his old age the word of the lord so this fall right at, at the very beginning we're doing just a mini little sermon series here uh, called named and we're looking at the power of names and the power of naming in scripture and so this week, we're going to see what's going on with the naming of Isaac. And, and the name Isaac, if you haven't caught it yet, means laughter. And we're going to ask, what does the laughter of an old woman teach us about God? And the answer, unsurprisingly, is, is it teaches us quite a bit. But first, I have a, a story. It's kind of a confession to share of, of Something that I couldn't shake from my mind as I was interacting with this text this week. It kept popping into my head when I thought about God and laughter. 
And uh, our own Mike and Bridget Nelson are partly to blame. And they're gone, they're on vacation, they're out of the country, so I can call them out on this at this time without embarrassing them too much. But uh, Mike and Bridget were both writers for a TV show um, in the 1990s. And a show that was probably at that time in my life, in the 90s, that was the greatest source of laughter for me was this TV show that they wrote for. Uh, It was called Mystery Science Theater 3000, MST3K for short. And so for the uninitiated, if you're just hearing about this for the first time, or maybe you forgot the premise of the show, uh, was that a couple of mad scientists kidnapped a poor dupe, first a guy named Joel, and then later uh, Mike himself, uh, and forced him to watch cheesy movies, the worst they could find, as an experiment to see how long it would take before this exercise drove him to the breaking point, and he went crazy. And and, and so in order to um, stave off insanity, Uh, Joel built a couple of robots to watch the movies along with him and make fun of them in order to keep his sanity. Now, this is, I mean, sort of a strange premise for a show, but trust me, it was, it was really, it was really funny. It worked. And in fact, uh, they brought it back. They resurrected the show. It's on, it's on Netflix now again. And so one of the movies that I remember watching that just came back to me, um, like, like a bolt from the blue, was this 1959 horror film they watched, a B-movie called The Giant Gila Monster. Or Gila, depending on your pronunciation, but we've got the definitive pronunciation. The Giant Gila Monster, which was about a, um, a, a giant Gila monster terrorizing a rural Texas town. And the movie is itself is just unintentionally hilarious because... You know, there's low-budget movies, and then there's no-budget movies. And uh, they didn't even try to do special effects. Now, I know it was the late 1950s, so they were limited in their technology. But the actors would just react as if they were seeing a giant Gila monster, and then they would cut to a scene of what's obviously just a regular Gila monster in its cage. Or one time, they did build a little mini set and have a Gila monster walk over it. It, 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 It's just truly terrible and absolutely hilarious. But what what made me think of this passage was this one particular scene where uh, the hero of the film, he's this singing mechanic, uh, and he has a great movie named Chase Winstead. So Chase Winstead, our, our hero mechanic, uh, inexplicably sings songs throughout the movie that were written by the actor uh, who played him. And he wrote one song called The Mushroom Song. And The Mushroom Song has this catchy, obnoxious um, chorus, interminable chorus, uh, that I'm going to sing for you now, and I think you'll understand why it made me think of this passage. And the Lord said, laugh, children, laugh. The Lord said, laugh, children, laugh. The Lord said, laugh, children, laugh. The Lord said, laugh, 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 laugh. The Lord, Isaac, you can see why I say this, but the funniest part of all is that at one point, Chase is singing this song, and the people are nodding their heads along with it, and the giant Gila monster breaks in on the scene. They cut to the Gila monster, and and the host of the show, Joel, sings out, and the Lord said, die, children, die, and it's just truly good times. (laughs) A great memory coming back from my childhood, and I couldn't stop thinking about this as as I was reading this passage during this week. But how about that question, what does the laughter of an old woman have to teach us about God? Because laughter, it's this fascinating phenomenon when you think about it, because laughter comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes and intensities and emotions and and situations. There's laughter for, it seems, almost any occasion. There's nervous laughter. There's polite laughter. 
There's embarrassed laughter, mocking laughter, you know, diabolical laughter, cruel laughter, cynical laughter, forced laughter. Heard some of that as a preacher in my day. Um, Uproarious laughter, genuine laughter, joyous laughter, uncontrollable laughter. We've got chuckles. We've got chortles, guffaws, shrieks, snickers, giggles, cackles, and clapter. So laughter, it's no simple thing. But but in our passage today, there's really two types of laughter that I want to talk about that we see. We, we, We see cynical laughter, and then we see something I'm going to call gospel laughter. So cynical laughter that comes from a place of bitterness and disappointment and joyful laughter, gospel laughter that comes from a place of joy. But before we look at sort of what's the difference between those two types of laughter, we we have to look at something else. Because, you know, we're all familiar with jokes, and jokes have two parts. There's the setup and the punchline. So we got the setup and the punchline. And so in order to understand Sarah's laughter, her two different kinds of laughter, the cynical laughter, the gospel laughter, at this same punchline, you're going to have a baby. That's the punchline for both types of laughter, we've got to understand the setup for the joke. So here's the setup for her first occasion of laughter. There once was a couple named Abram and Sarai, and they had a happy life in in Haran. And they were rich, they were prosperous, life looked good. And then one day, out of the blue, Abram got religion. God said, go. Leave everything behind you and go to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And can you count the the grains of sand that are on the beach? Or can you you count all the the stars that you can see uh, on a clear, dark night? Well, then neither, Abram, will you be able to count the number of your descendants. That's how numerous they will be. And I'm going to bless you and through you every single nation, all the nations on earth are going to be blessed. I mean, who could, could pass on a promise like that, an opportunity like that? I mean, it sounded almost too good to be true. And so Abram and, and Sarai, they, they packed up all that they had, and they set off for the land of Canaan. And that's the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. But how's this for a promising start? By the end of that very same chapter, we're told that there's been a famine in the land, and so that they had to go down to Egypt. And Abram is worried at this point that Pharaoh is going to set his sights on Sarai because she, the text tells us, is beautiful. And so Abram thinks, Pharaoh's just going to kill me. He's going to take Sarai to be his wife. And, and, and so he hatches this scheme where she will just try to pass off as his sister. That's the second half of that same chapter that starts with this amazing promise to Abraham. And then in Genesis 13, there's this family feud between Abram and, and his no-good nephew Lot. We can just imagine uh, Sarai saying at this point, I, I told you not to bring him. And the land isn't big enough for the both of them. And so Abram says, look, okay, Lot, we, 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 there's enough space for both of us. Look to the left. If that land looks good to you, I'll take the land to the right. Or look to the right. If that land looks good to you, I'll take the land to the left. And the text tells us that when Lot looked to the right, he looked at the Jordan Valley and it looked like the Garden of God, the Garden of Eden. And he looked to the left It was a little rockier, hillier, drier. And so he said, you know what, uncle? I'm going to take one for the team. I'll I'll take the land to the right this time. And then in the next chapter, 
Still no descendants, by the way. Still none of these promised, you know, stars in the sky or, or sand on the beach. Abram had to get Lot out of a scrape to bail him out. And, and then God shows up again, again, and Abram says, where is this heir? You promised me, God. And God shows up and, and promises again, it's coming. It's coming. But still nothing happens. And so at this point, Sarai takes matters into her own hands and says, well, if God is not going to come through, then we can't let that stop us. Here, Abram, sleep with my handmaiden, Hagar. She'll give us a child. And she did, and Sarai hated her for it. And they called him Ishmael. And then God showed up again and said, Abram, you know, we're going to need to change your name. Your name, Abram, it means exalted father. Well, guess what? It's going to be Abraham now, which means the father of a multitude, because that's just how many descendants you're going to have. And Sarai, we got to change her name. She, she's going to be Sarah now, because, because, because princes and kings and great nations are going to be born through her. That's my solemn promise. And when he heard this, Abraham laughed. He was almost 100 years old at this point. Sarah was 90. They'd been hearing these promises for 25 years. By the time these three strange visitors showed up in the desert and made those same promises again. This time, we're told that that Sarah was in her tent, eavesdropping, and and she heard the promise for herself. And the chief spokesman for the three strange visitors said, "I, I will surely return to you about this same time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And so when we understand the setup, then we can understand why she took it as a joke, a cruel joke at that To Sarah, it was like Lucy holding out the football and telling Charlie Brown, this time, I promise, I'm not going to move it. Just come and kick it. Come on, Charlie Brown, I promise you, this time, I'm not going to move it. And that's the joke, right? That every time the football gets moved. And for Sarah, she had heard this all before She knew her body, she understood biology, she understood that this was impossible, and so she laughed the laughter of a cynic, the laughter of someone who understands the impossibility of this promise, who who understood that she needed to laugh because she was all out of tears. Cynical laughter comes from someone who understands that the world is tragic, There is no happy ending, no deus ex machina that's going to come in and intervene and set everything to rights. Cynical laughter comes from someone who understands that life is is filled with bitterness and disappointment and false hopes. And so get used to it. Deal with it. Laugh at it. Laugh at the absurdity of it all. Laugh at the people who, who tell you that this time it's going to be different. Because it's not. And the joke's on them. Though ultimately the joke's on you too. The old saying, we're all in this together and none of us are getting out of it alive. Now, as I mentioned before, I got to spend some time this week with the Christian author uh, Friedrich, uh, Frederick Beekner, and, and he, in that book, the, the, Telling the Truth, the Gospel as Tragedy and Comedy and Fairy Tale, he, he has profound reflections on this very passage. And Beekner says, I think he's right. What makes tragedy truly tragic is its inevitability. 
In a tragedy, there's no escaping fate. No matter what, we all know what's going to happen. Think of the tragedy par excellence, uh, Oedipus Rex, Aeschylus' Oedipus Rex. And what's so tragic about Oedipus is that he already knows the terrible prophecy. You're going to sleep with your mother and kill your father. And even though he knows that, despite his protestations, despite his best efforts to make sure that this prophecy does not come true, it's inevitable. We all know it. It is going to happen. This terrible fate is going to befall him. And so the world of cynical laughter is the world of the inevitable, the world without God, the world that is completely imminent, no transcendence, closed off. Right? It's the world of, of Holden Caulfield. It's, it's full of phonies. Or the world of our postmodern condition. We can't believe in, really believe in anyone or anything because inevitably we will be disappointed. So it's better to just relate to the world with this kind of sense of detached irony. You know, absurd memes. Because there's a secret to living in, in, in the cynical world. You can't get your heart broken. You never put your heart out there. You can't be disappointed if you never expect anything. And you can't have your hopes dashed if you actually never hope. That's lesson number one of being a Vikings fan, by the way. <laughs> we all know what it's like to live in that cynical, that cynical world, even though this year it's going to be different, right? The joke's on us. And so the cynic sits back and laughs in derision at anyone who would be so foolish as to make a promise or believe someone who does. That's Sarah's laughter in Genesis 18. And as much as we oftentimes put ourselves in that cynical world, there's something about us that wants to be fooled again, to believe that this time is going to be different. And you know, for Sarah... And her cynical laughter, there's still part of her that hopes that this is true. And the beautiful thing is that the joke's on her because in Genesis 21, she does con indeed conceive and bear a son and she names him Isaac, laughter, because she says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears about what happened will laugh over me. But that phrase, laugh over me, in, in Hebrew, it's this delight delightfully ambiguous phrase. It could either mean laugh with me or laugh at me. And we can think of, you know, people laughing with her. Wow, this joy, I want to share in her joy by laughing with her. But laughing at her, she's become this, this holy fool. This old woman with just an infant child. She's moved from Genesis 18 to Genesis 21 to, to from the world of cynical laughter to the world of gospel laughter. The world of laughter as true comedy. Now, if tragedy is inevitable, Beekner says that, that comedy, true comedy, involves the unforeseeable, the unpredictable. And what's more unforeseeable than the gospel? Right? He is not dead. He's not here. You're looking for the living among the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Who saw it coming? What could be a better joke than that? That the, the kingdom of God belongs not to the best and the brightest and the very serious people or, or the most religious, but to the IRS men and, and the prostitutes and the people of Walmart. The kingdom of God is for them first and foremost. What a marvelous 
joke. That God showed up in the flesh for them. That the kingdom belongs to those people. See, the key to gospel laughter hinges on that question in Genesis 18 where the mysterious visitor asks, is anything too hard, too wonderful for the Lord? And it's not a rhetorical question. It's a question that invites a decision, that invites a response. Because if the answer to that question, is anything too hard for the Lord, is yes, then all that's left is tragedy and cynicism and Lucy pulling away the football once again. But if the answer is no, that that nothing is too hard for the Lord, well, then it opens up a world that is full of possibility and surprises, that things aren't just inevitable. And that's the scandal of faith. Because faith is not just this strictly reasonable act which fits into the normal scheme of life. Faith doesn't fit into that mold. It shatters that mold. And what is the birth of Isaac itself, if not a kind of a type of resurrection, of life emerging from a place that everyone, including Sarah, assumed was dead? Is anything too hard, too marvelous, too wonderful for the Lord? That's the the question that, that the text, it honestly confronts us with today. And it dares us, it, it, it dares us to answer no. Nothing is too wonderful. And to live with the consequences of so doing. On Sarah's initial laughter, Beekner writes this. He says, maybe the most interesting part of it all is that far from getting angry at them for laughing, God told them that when the baby was born, He wanted them to name him laughter. So you can say that God not only tolerated their laughter, but but blessed it, and in a sense, joined it in himself, which makes it a very special laughter indeed. God and man laughing together, sharing a glorious joke in which both of them are involved. Is it possible, I wonder to say, that it is only when you hear the gospel as a wild and marvelous joke that you really hear it at all? Heard as anything else, the gospel is the church's thing, the preacher's thing, the lecturer's thing. Heard as a joke, high and unbidden and ringing with laughter, it can only be God's thing. I love that. And this joke that God told to Sarah was itself just a setup for that ultimate punchline of Jesus Christ. Because the laughter of Sarah, it connects us to Jesus. And, and this point was, was captured marvelously by this, this fellow named Ambrose, St. Ambrose of Milan, who is this famous bishop of Milan and preacher, and, and is most famous for us because he had a profound influence on Augustine of Hippo becoming St. Augustine. He was the preacher under whose teaching Augustine became a Christian. And so Ambrose, as he was reflecting on this text, had this to say in a sermon about how the, punch, the, the joke of Isaac prepares us for the punchline of Jesus. He says, An aged woman who was sterile brought forth Isaac to birth according to God's promise, so that we might believe that God has power to bring it about that even a virgin may give birth. He was offered for a sacrifice in a singular fashion, that the famous story of the binding of Isaac. 
that he might not be lost to his father and yet might fulfill the sacrifice like Christ. Likewise, by his very name, he prefigures grace, for Isaac means laughter, and laughter is the sign of joy. Now everybody knows that he is the joy of all who checked the dread of fearsome death, took away its terror, and became for all people the forgiveness of sins. So Isaac is just the setup, and Jesus is the punchline. And so let us laugh and give thanks to God because nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.